Please open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 5. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 628. In these opening chapters of Proverbs, we've been listening in on a series of conversations between a father and his son as the father urges his son to pursue godly wisdom, godly skill at life. Now in chapter 5, and indeed the next two chapters, we sort of listen in as the father gives his son the talk, as we might say. The father turns to the folly of adultery and the wisdom of lovemaking within marriage. We need to remember the father isn't setting up a double standard here between men and women. Rather, it's, it's part of the literary structure of the book. He's addressing his son in specific. And in that context, the son needs to be wary of the seductive woman because that's, he's talking to his son. But daughters, the same lesson applies as well. Daughters, too, need to be wary of smooth words and empty promises. So it goes both ways. The father's going to return to this theme in the next two chapters as well. Because this is an area where we desperately need godly wisdom. The father recognizes that foolish affairs are one of the greatest hazards that confront young men. Even Solomon, despite his great wisdom, stumbled into folly in his relationships with disastrous results. In fact, one of the reasons I think Proverbs 1 through 9, I suggest at the beginning of the series, is not written by, Proverbs, by Solomon himself, but by the later scribes who collected Solomon's Proverbs, is because they stress this point. They're saying Solomon spoke all these Proverbs, and yet here's where he fell. Don't do the same. It's not a hill I want to die on whether Proverbs wrote, or Solomon wrote these opening chapters or not, so don't worry about that one way or the other. 3,000 years later, we still need wisdom in this area. One recent author wrote, sustaining faithful relationships and encouraging the ability to live disciplined sexual lives may be one of the most influential missional tasks of the contemporary church as we witness to the kingdom of God in the midst of a sexually confused and relationally fatalistic culture. This should make equipping men and women to live whole and healed lives in the area of sexuality and relationships a key priority and passion for Christian leaders. One thing we're going to notice right from the start is the father is not squeamish. He doesn't beat around the bush. It's a frank talk that he has with his son. And he recognizes that having this sort of talk with our children is necessary if we're going to steer our children away from folly and towards wisdom. Let me underline the point for you. Parents, you cannot subsidize sex ed to the public school or the internet. It will lead to disaster. It's not comfortable. I'm not thrilled to be standing up here this morning talking on this topic. There's other things I'd probably pick first, but it's necessary if we're going to live wise lives. Let's listen to the father's words to his son in Proverbs 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. 
her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all time with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he's held fast in the court of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This is God's word. I think my strategy this morning is I'm going to take my glasses off. I can see my notes. I can see you generally. But if my eyes fall upon you at any given point, I can't really see who I'm looking at. So don't think that I'm singling you out. That'll be my strategy this morning. This will work. In this passage, the father warns the son two main things. First, steer clear of temptation. And second, he praises marriage, saying, be content with God's gifts. First, steer clear of temptation. Steer clear of temptation. In verses 3 through 14, we're taught that we need to recognize what temptation looks like, what it is, and to steer clear of it. The father begins in verses 3 through 6 by frankly analyzing this temptation. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. The father doesn't deny the allure of this forbidden woman. Her lips drip honey, and her speech, or more literally her palate, her mouth, is smoother than oil. It's foolish to deny the very real allure of this woman. It's foolish to deny that temptation is tempting. What we desire does indeed have desirable qualities. The father uses language that is almost certainly a suggestive double entendre. You can work out for yourself what it means. He's being totally frank with his son. He's saying, I understand why this is tempting. It's important to remember that sexual feelings, bodily desires, are part of our good created nature. In fact, they're part of what it means to bear God's image. All the way back in Genesis 1, God created a And yet this woman is described as forbidden. Literally, it's, it's saying she's a strange woman. So some translations say she's a foreign woman. 
The idea here is that she is from outside the son's own community. She's a stranger to him. And so the temptation that she represents is easy sex without consequences in the community. If you're around my age or older, you'll probably recall that Las Vegas had an advertising slogan in the 2000s, what happens in Vegas stays here. You guys remember that? The whole idea is you're away from your own community, and so the city claimed while you're on vacation, you can do whatever you want without consequences back home. That's the temptation this woman represents. Someone from outside your own community, no entanglements, no connections, no consequences. And yet the father recognizes that these sexual temptations are based on twin lies, that something can be anonymous and consequence-free. And nothing's changed. We face the same temptation. We're tempted when we think something's anonymous. No one knows what websites I'm visiting, what Instagram accounts I'm looking at, who I'm messaging with. No one will ever find out. But it's a lie. The father says in verse 21, we must always remember a man's ways are always before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all a man's paths. What we do is never anonymous for the, eyes Lord, the Lord's eyes are upon us. I wonder how that would work as an advertising slogan. Would it create the same sort of culture in Las Vegas to say what happens in Vegas is always before the eyes of the Lord? Friends, there's simply no such thing as a vacation away from a life of integrity lived before the Lord. What you do on your phone or your computer, even what you do in secret, is before the eyes of the Lord. There's no privacy settings that screen out God's omniscience. The first temptation, or the first lie of sexual temptation is that it's anonymous. The second is that it's consequence-free. She's from outside the community. Who will ever find out? What could the consequences be? But you see in verses 9 and 10, the father warns, beware, it's not consequence-free. The price is more than you imagine. Beware lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Verse 9 is saying you're going to be exploited. You'll give your honor, your dignity, your reputation, what makes life worth living. You'll give it away to others. And you'll give away your years, your time, your life to the merciless, to someone who doesn't really care about you. Verse 10 says you'll be ruined when this woman's husband and family find out. Strangers will take their fill of your strength and your labors will go to the house of a foreigner. There are always consequences. The father here seems to envision that when the husband finds out, you might be enslaved to work off your debt to him. That may not happen today, and yet alimony, child support, broken homes, jealousy, loneliness, sexually transmitted infections... And the list goes on. There are always consequences. And then verses 11 through 14, the father warns that there are also social consequences. Not just you'll end up giving away your honor and your strength, but you'll regret that you've rejected good teaching and teachers and end up with shame, humiliation, and loss of standing in the community. How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers. 
or incline my ear to my instructors, I am on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. And finally, there are always consequences for our character. You see in verse 6, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. It's aimless wandering to and fro, but this lack of attention ultimately destroys souls. The Father's warning is that what we do in private shapes our character, who we are, and so it affects how we relate to others in our community. Uh, Tim Keller summarizing uh, an essay of Wendell Berry puts it this way, when you use sex for individual recreation and fulfillment, you learn to commodify people and think of them as a means to satisfy your own passing pleasure. So the father starts by warning about foolish sex. He's saying this is the way of folly, but you see in verses 22 and 23, he warns his son, in the end, you will end up being one of the wicked. You might recall from a couple weeks ago the definition of, the Proverbs definition of the wicked, those who disadvantage others to their own advantage. He's saying in the end, you'll wind up being wicked, one who winds up using others. And this mindset becomes a snare which ultimately leads to death. Do you see in verse 3, the primary temptation is not this woman's physical appearance, but her words. Her seductive charm is sweet and smooth words, and yet her feet go down to death. Friends, the father does a skillful job here of unmasking that sexual temptation always tells false promises. It seems sweet and smooth, but leads to death. There's always these false promises. Here your desires will be fulfilled. Here is true happiness. Temptation claims monogamy is keeping you back. And yet studies show that with the decline in monogamous relationships in recent years, statistically, physical intimacy is becoming less frequent among adults. Temptation claims that traditional religious morals are shackles keeping you back from true fulfillment. But again, recent studies uh, and, and surveys show that highly religious married couples claim to be the most satisfied in their physical relationships. Temptation tells lies. It makes empty promises. It may be sweet for a while, but the Father says in verse 4, her words are sweet, but in the end it is bitter. Her mouth is smooth for a while, but in the end it is sharp. So what's the wise response to temptation then? The father analyzes the temptation. Here's what we're dealing with. What's the wise response? Steer clear of temptation. That's what the father says in verse 8. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Steer clear of temptation. Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 5. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The Father's advice works on a number of levels. Uh, certainly Jesus' advice seems to be metaphorical there. But I think the Father literally means it. He's saying, son, when you're coming home from the field or the vineyard, don't take the path that goes by her house. 
Don't even walk on that road. Take the long way around. Keep far from her. Flee, uh, steer clear of temptation. A few years ago, I was replacing the clutch on my car with a friend, and uh, we were getting stuck getting the, the clutch out, and he said, well, look this up on your phone. I said, well, what happened to your phone? Uh, I knew he had a smartphone. I thought maybe he dropped it and broke it or something, but he said, uh, it's too much of a temptation to get onto stuff he shouldn't, and so he got rid of it. He literally steered clear of temptation. I think that's a wise response. Wisdom recognizes when and where temptation comes from, and it steers clear of it. Sometimes you are faced suddenly with temptation, unexpectedly, and you need to respond well in the moment. But generally, especially in the area we're talking about this morning, we know where the temptation is going to come from, we know when the temptation is going to arise, and we need to plan ahead to steer clear of it. Maybe there's a coworker you need to be careful about spending time alone with. Maybe you should only be using your phone or computer in public places. Maybe there's movies you shouldn't watch or places you shouldn't go to drink because you know the temptations it will lead to. Part of steering clear of the temptation is to judge the current, the present, in light of the end. This woman presents opportunities in the moment, and yet twice the father says, look at it in light of the end. Verse 4, her lips drip honey, but in the end she's bitter as wormwood. Her palate is smooth like oil, but in the end, she is sharp as a two-edged sword. Judge the momentary temptation in light of the end results. Remembering temptation makes promises it can't deliver. Again, in verse 11, the father says, yes, it's tempting at the moment, it's desirable. But at the end of your life, you will groan, and your flesh and body will be consumed. In the end, your life will be impoverished and robbed of meaning. You will be left with regret. And so we plan to steer clear of temptation by judging in light of the end, asking what kind of person is this helping me to become? A wicked person? A wise person? But the ultimate response to temptation that the Father gives here is not negative, but positive. So far, the things I've said seem typical. It's what people assume Christians are going to say. Don't do this, don't do that, that sort of thing. And yet the father is positive, uh, even explicit, in his celebration of delighting in God's good gift of sex in marriage. So verses 15 to 20, the father tells the son, be content with God's gifts. Be content with God's gifts. In March uh, 1941, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a remarkable letter to his son Michael, who I believe at that point was serving in the military. It's in the middle of World War II. He apparently was asking advice about a woman, given the content of the letter, and that he got married later that year. Tolkien's letter is remarkable because it reflects the sort of wisdom of the father in Proverbs. He begins by writing to his son, A man's dealings with women can be purely physical. They cannot really, of course, but I mean he can refuse to take other things into account to the great damage of his soul and body and theirs. Or friendly, or he can be a lover, engaging and blending all his affections and powers of mind and body in a complex emotion, powerfully colored 
and energized by sex. Tolkien, like the father in Proverbs, warns his father or his son, here's areas of folly, here's things to watch out for. And yet at the same time, it's not just a negative warning, but he points to the positive alternative, engaging and blending all your affections and powers of mind and body into a complex emotion, powerfully colored and energized by sex. Sexual desire and longing is not a result of sin. Okay? God didn't look down at Adam and Eve and say, oh my word, what are these people doing? I never intended that. He knew all along. It's part of his blessing on creation. In fact, part of our nature as created in God's image is to have sexual desire. But as Jonathan Grant summarizes, Christian sexuality must be given its meaning and form by Christian virtues, vocations, and purposes. Its virtues include fidelity, chastity, and courage. Its core vocations or callings are singleness and marriage. Its purposes include enriching the community of faith and witnessing to the kingdom of God. What's Grant saying here? He's saying, which all Christians experience at one point or another in their life and marriage are callings from God. Indeed, both states are God's gifts. And God uses those states, both marriage and singleness, to shape us into wise and virtuous people. So even here, the father is encouraging his son while he is single to avoid this tempting woman, even though it presents easy, apparently consequence-free sex. But then he's also saying, in marriage, delight. Do you see the son's being shaped both in his restraint and singleness and his delight in marriage. Both singleness and marriage are ways of enriching the community of faith and witnessing to the kingdom of God. That is to say, a healthy church needs families, but it also needs single people. And the single people and families need to relate together and support each other. What I want to reflect on for a moment is two things. Being content with God's gifts, finding wisdom, and joy in marriage. Wisdom and joy in marriage. Both marriage and singleness are sources of wisdom if we learn to be content with the gift that God has given us. Marriage is like a school where we learn cooperation, sacrifice, servants, service, patience, love, forgiveness. Of course, these lessons can all be learned other places as well. These are the kinds of virtues we try to teach to our children. To be self-sacrificing, to cooperate, to serve to be patient. But in marriage, there's almost no way to hide your selfishness, your laziness, your impatience, your lack of forgiveness. And so if marriage is going to flourish, you have to grow in these areas. And then to make the same point even more so, in the sex in marriage, selfishness, laziness, impatience lead to a lack of flourishing. Married sex forces you to learn these virtues. I quote again from Tolkien's letter to his son. The essence of a fallen world is that the best cannot be attained by free enjoyment or by what is called self-realization, usually a nice name for self-indulgence, wholly inimical to the realization of other selves. But uh, 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 the best is attained by denial, by suffering. Faithfulness in Christian marriage entails just that, great mortification. For a Christian man, there's no escape, 
Marriage may help to sanctify and direct to its proper object his sexual desires. Its grace may help him in the struggle, but the struggle remains. It will not satisfy him as hunger may be kept off by rails. It will offer as many difficulties to the purity proper state as it provides easements. No man, however truly he loved his betrothed and bride as a young man, has lived faithful to her as a wife in mind and body without deliberate conscious exercise of the will, without self-denial. Pogan saying marriage shapes men to be better by teaching them denial, suffering, exercising their self-control and will. Marriage is a gift from God, but it doesn't work like magic to do away with all troubles. Rather, it puts us into a particular situation where we're shaped in particular ways. Just as singleness puts us into a particular situation that shapes us in particular ways. The wisdom of marriage, then. Uh, we also see it, again, applying it to the sexual realm as the father does, that men and women are different. And they balance each other's differences. And so both learn more truly what the full breadth of human experience by the balance of, uh, of a man and a woman in a marriage. Turning then to the joy of marriage, the father's frankness in celebrating the joys of marriage is almost embarrassing. And so I have my glasses off. He uses this image of water. In semi-arid Israel, water is a rare resource. Okay? It's the most important natural resource to be able to water your fields and vineyards. If you're not a farmer and don't know the value of, of water, maybe you watched this movie Dune that came out recently and they're on a desert planet and the water is the source of life. And not just life, but a source of great refreshment. The father's using this frankly explicit metaphor for the man and wife, that it's to be refreshment, that it's, it's their most important natural resource. In verse 15, he talks about a cistern. A cistern is a sort of uh, pear-shaped cave dug into the uh, rock that you go down into with a ladder for storing water, and you draw the water out. And then he talks in verse 16 about a spring where water flows forth freely. And so he's saying this is images for the male and the female coming together. He's saying this is what should refresh you. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Don't spread your water all over the place. Let them be for yourself alone and not for the stranger with you. See, what he's saying here is saying there's profound depths to a sexual relationship, and it has to be found in the context of a committed covenant marriage. That's what it means to be content with God's gifts. I think oftentimes, at least what we see around about us is, if things aren't working well, then get divorced and go to the next person. If things aren't going well, break up with this person and go to the next person. Uh, Tolkien, in that letter, he... He goes on to say uh, 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 that if you're not self-disciplined, he's warning his son that you'll, it leads to divorce for your soulmate. And he says your soulmate tends to be the next sexually attractive available person. And that's the way it tends to work. And isn't that how we think? Things are hard, I'll just go to someone else. And yet the, the father's saying here there's depths like a cistern. There's depths like a well that, 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 that you only plunge years into your marriage. That it takes time to grow and to practice. The father then in verses 18 and 19 pronounces a blessing on his son. It's a prayer that God would bless his son. He says, let your fountain be blessed 
Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, or actually the word's probably an ibex, uh, uh, long horns, and it goes along the cliff face. Graceful. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. You see what this blessing's saying? The wife of your youth, the woman you loved at first and committed yourself to her, let her always be a fountain and a blessing to you. The body part he singles out is not used for procreation. He's saying there should be a joy in the physical relationship apart from procreation. Song of Songs makes the same point and emphasizes it as well for women. There's meant to be physical joy in marriage apart from procreation. May you always be intoxicated. He's saying don't be foolish and be intoxicated out there, but in your own home, in the privacy of your own relationship, be intoxicated, infatuated, besotted, Always, repeatedly, constantly, regularly. This is what contentment in marriage looks like. You don't change spouses because you're bored or or, or frustrated, but you always keep returning to the wife or husband of your youth. And yet, and yet, even within the context of marriage, a sexual relationship is never as fully fulfilling as we might hope. There's always leftover desire and longing. There's always something left over. And that's because our desires, our longings, are sort of like a compass that are meant to point us to God. The passion in a marriage relationship is meant to be a picture to us of God's own passionate love for his people. The faithfulness that, uh, that, that a w- husband and wife show for each other, their fidelity, the faithfulness of single people in that state are pictures of, of Christ's own faithfulness to his church. And married love is supposed to be open to the possibility of fruitfulness, of bearing children. And likewise, it's a picture of God's own love that is fruitful, that overflows. And so even... Sexual relationship in marriage is only a picture pointing to the thing itself, our communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the glory of the church is that the thing itself, our communion with God, is open to singles, those who have been widowed, to married alike. We all together experience the thing itself, God's own rapturous love for us. Friends, there are undeniably struggles in this area. I think if any of us as adults are saying or or youth are saying we don't struggle in this area, we're lying. Okay, there are struggles. And the Father gives us strategies. He says steer clear of temptation. Plan ahead. Think it through. Analyze the temptation. But ultimately, it's not negative uh, uh, warnings that are going to help us in our struggles in this area. Ultimately, what we need is the positive picture of God's own love to us. You've already heard it several times in the service, that God so loved us that he gave his only son, his son who is the wise son, who listens to his father's advice. Do you think about Jesus' own life? He turned away from easy pleasure. Here's someone wandering around Israel. Uh, Surely there were all sorts of women that were foreign to him outside of his own community. He could have got away with all sorts of things. And yet Jesus turned away from easy pleasure. Why? 
for his great love for the church, for the sake of his bride. Not only did he, did he sacrifice the easy for, the, for his great love, but he even gave himself for her. Uh, there was a, a shooting in Texas in June in a hospital, and, and one of the victims was a f- man who'd been married to his wife 55 years, and she's in a hospital bed, and he realized there's no way that she can get out of the hospital, and so he protected her with his own body and died uh, uh, after 55 years of marriage, protecting his bride. And what a picture that is of what Christ does for his church, that he places his own body on the cross in the way of what we deserve, the death we earned for his bride. We see his love on the cross, but we hear his love in words like we've already read from Ecclesiastes this morning. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, come away. Let me see your face, let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet, your face is lovely. That's Christ's word to you, as as unbelievable as it is. And so as we struggle in this area, the real resource is to rest and rejoice in Christ's love and his desire, his passion for us. Let us rejoice in that as we close. Loving God, we thank you that you are love, that even when we strayed from you like the foolish son or the fools in this proverb that were warned about, that you sought us out, that you gave your own son as a sign of your great love for us, that Christ Jesus, you gave up uh, uh, pleasure in this life as a human for the sake of winning back your bride, that you gave up your own life to shield us, to protect us. Lord, may we rejoice in your love for us. Throughout this life, we are always racked by desire, by longing, by frustration. That's the way of things. It requires self-control and patience. And yet, Lord, let those desires and longings point us to you, to remind us of your great longing for us. Lord, help us to be wise in this area where we need wisdom. Help us to steer clear of temptation. Teach us to be content in your gifts. Let those who are single be content in that state for the time that they are single. Let those who are married be content in that state for the time they are married. Let us together as a church grow together, families, singles, married, all together, as we together enjoy our great communion with you. We offer this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of love. Amen.